Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Now that healthcare workers have become the first COVID-19 vaccine recipients in the United States, their fellow Americans await their opportunity after nursing home residents, first responders, and others. What do we need to know about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and will most Americans accept their safety and efficacy? With us on this edition of the program is Dr. Anthony Barone, a professor of biology who specializes in immunology and microbiology. The shot in the arm for which we've all been waiting after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Signs of positive momentum can be seen in Tennessee's third quarter housing data following the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. Several indicators such as housing construction, home sales, and home prices are showing strong outcomes this period, according to the research report completed by MTSU's Business and Economic Research Center. Third quarter housing construction data in Tennessee is promising, showing growth for all permit types when compared to the previous quarter and year. In home sales, quarterly comparisons for Nashville, Knoxville, and Memphis show there's been a significant uptick in closings. Nashville's closings show the most significant quarterly increase at 27.4%. Knoxville's closings increased 25.4%. And Memphis's closings increased 20.5%. And after almost 14 years at the East Main Street location, MTSU's parking services will move into a new building at 205 City View Drive and open for business on Monday, January 4th. Transportation services will join them in the new building. The relocation initially stemmed from the growth of the university's shuttle bus fleet. Though parking and transportation services are part of the same department, they've been physically separated for the last several years, having been located across campus from one another. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Ferrone, thanks for being with us. We appreciate you taking the time to do this for us. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Usually it takes much longer for new pharmaceuticals to undergo all the rigorous trials necessary to make sure that they're safe and they work. How were Pfizer and Moderna able to speed up this process and yet maintain the scientific rigor necessary for a project of this kind? Since D-Day, I think uh, there hasn't been... uh, an effort uh, put forward by, you know, a combination of industry and the government uh, to focus in on a, on a project. So <clears throat> it really has been exciting. And uh, again, it's also due to some new technology that has really been in the pipeline, you know, since really the early 90s. So it's been about 25 years that we've been working on these technologies, but now we've really had the um, I guess, impetus to uh, really put it to uh, clinical trials and, and, uh, you know, solve this problem in in a quick way that in the past, uh, we really, you know, took a lot longer with the older technology. So so it really comes down to the Moderna and Pfizer um, vaccines being this new uh, RNA technology that allowed us to really ramp up production and, and, um, you know, like you say, uh, get it in the arms of people uh, within a uh, almost uh, two years, uh, less than two years, really. As far as uh, other uh, SARS events in, in the past, 
have kind of given us some foreshadowing of this. So uh, again, I think a lot of scientists have been uh, getting ready for this. And again, uh, it's, it's been amazing, really. Can you describe the new technology for us in layman's terms? Because it took about five years, if I remember correctly, to get the Ebola vaccine ready. Uh, everybody has learned about back in high school biology as far as this ability of this RNA molecule to be made into protein. And, and that's really the basics of what these vaccines are. It's just a matter of how do we deliver this RNA that's very fragile in a way that will last long enough for it to be made into the protein that we need, this uh, virus spike protein uh, to generate an immune response. You know, basically that's what's taken about 25 years was to figure out a way to deliver these fragile RNA molecules inside of our cells. Uh, I don't know for sure if you put um, oil in your uh, boiling water when you're making pasta, but it, it, it's kind of like those oil droplets that kind of glob together. We're basically taking these uh, droplets that contain, these lipid droplets that contain the RNA and, and are allowing it to enter into our cells that are also these basically lipid uh, membranes. So that lipid lipid just kind of globs together fuses together and then the the viral little RNA that we want gets inside of our cells but, but that was a lot more difficult than you know just having your uh, little bit of uh, canola or vegetable oil globbed together uh, so uh, there was a lot of work done uh, to get that worked out but it seems to be, even though uh, the Pfizer vaccine is still very fragile and needs to be at a super cold temperature, uh, it seems to be that uh, we have uh, these uh, technologies now so that basically as long as we keep them cold, these uh, very fr fragile uh, RNA molecules can do what we need them to do. Um, when I was um, in uh, Boston, we, we would work with RNA, and my boss, when he was uh, training me, would say, basically, RNA is going away as you look at it. So these RNA molecules, if they're not kept super cold, really are breaking apart, and that's what they're designed to do, really, inside of your cell. You don't really want that message, that messenger RNA, to be around for long periods of time. So basically, we, we have this system built in so that this RNA molecule falls apart. That's what it's kind of, you know, it's designed to, you know, kind of like the, the radio signal, right? It doesn't stay out there forever in the airwaves, right? You, you know, hear it and, you know, you can record it, but, you know, you can't, kind of like a virus, you can't really see it. So it's the same in the cell when you have these uh, messenger RNA little messages, you want it to basically do its job and, and go away. Your, your immune response is great, uh, but it's also very, very specific. Vaccine work kind of is, is kind of uh, like being, a, I tell my students, kind of like an umpire. You only get recognized when you make a, you know, a mistake. It, it, it's, you don't really get credit when things work because 
nobody even realizes that it worked because you didn't get sick. But if something goes wrong, uh, you know, again, and there have been some, you know, little uh, side effects that have come up in the UK and not, you know, deadly side effects or anything, but some serious side effects, you know, it is, you know, something to um, think about, be concerned about. Uh, and obviously that's why we do all these clinical trials. I think if this vaccine works or these vaccines work, people are going to notice in a big way. Well, right. It's kind of like with, uh, again, before COVID, I used to show my students the polio story. We had a nice documentary and, and uh, you know, it talked to all the parents about how, you know, they couldn't wait to get their kids vaccinated. And, you know, that was a whole different story until we got to COVID. You know, you know, I would always be kind of discouraged when I would ask my students how many people got the flu shot. And it would be like maybe 10% of the class. And, you know, it was mostly pre-med, you know, sort of pre-health students. So it was kind of discouraging. But, yeah, I think maybe we're at about 70% now of people that, are really excited about getting the COVID vaccine. So that makes me feel good. More on that later. Right now, we'll take a break. This is MTSU on the record. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. Students should be able to select EXL-designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Anthony Ferrone is our guest. He's a professor of biology, and we're talking about the COVID-19 vaccines, uh, the science behind them, and uh, a little bit of the uh, sociology as well. Yeah. Uh, in the early stages of this process, the companies were just putting out press releases, but eventually they began releasing scientific data for examination. What do you see when you look at the specific scientific data uh, that is probably beyond the average citizen's ability to, to analyze? Uh, do you find the necessary rigor? Were they as meticulous as they needed to be? Yeah, it, it really is amazing. And again, this is sort of, in my experience, uh, we worked with a company out of Franklin that was going through an FDA approval of a joint compound for, you know, uh, joint replacement uh, compound for um, people that, you know, would get a hip replacement. And um, the, the person that we worked with said that it, it was about 40,000 pages of data and, and evidence that they would have to submit to the FDA and it still didn't get approved. So, uh, again, this is, uh, you know, obviously uh, the COVID vaccines have been fast-tracked, 
but but I think they've gone through all the rigor, and I can't even imagine uh, a lot of these um, uh, companies and universities have been working. I know Vanderbilt is involved with it, you know, basically 24-7 on this work, some of which, you know, you can't really uh, speed up how a mouse or a primate uh, experiment is going to be expedited, right? You know, you have kind of the people involved can really work hard and uh, 24-7, but the immune responses of these mice and uh, the animal studies that have been involved to get to the, the actual clinical trials in humans, uh, that obviously can't be rushed. And I've looked at the data and, and um, all the um, animal studies and uh, primates uh, have all, you know, shown really good results. Thousands of people have been uh, in these uh, trials. And, and um, you know, when we get to millions of people uh, with the actual vaccine, you know, naturally, there's going to be some differences when we uh, scale up to that level. So I think um, the UK has found out that, again, if you are uh, an individual that has a lot of allergic responses that, you know, you might need to uh, wait and see. And there's many different vaccines that are in the pipeline besides these two. Uh, so, so again, by having all these different technologies besides the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, you know, we may find that uh, there are some better um, technologies out there that, that work just as well, but may work better in a different population Right now, we kind of are concentrating on teenagers on up. And, and so um, it takes a while to go from teenagers on down. And those are much more rigorous, uh, restricted, uh, careful uh, dosing down, they call it, uh, to get down from infants or toddlers. As a matter of fact, this entire endeavor is one great big longitudinal study because you're going to have to follow up with the people who get the vaccine and see oh, yeah. how it affects people of all races, all ages, people with pre-existing conditions. We don't know what effect it would have on pregnant women yet. Mm-hmm. There's got to be follow-up along the way. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, you know, uh, like you mentioned, uh, pregnant women, breastfeeding women, um, you know, they're already finding that there are kind of certain severe long-term uh, effects of uh, corona infection in different individuals. Um, so if you have certain genes you inherit from your parents, you kind of are more susceptible to some of these uh, more severe uh, long-term side effects of the virus, not the vaccine, but that may, may also be uh, shown with, you know, these different vaccines that, you know, you, you might see, like you say, some long-term situations. And, and that's why we haven't used uh, kids or pregnant women in, in these studies yet. We'll take another break right here. We'll return in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. The American Democracy Project is a nonprofit initiative which strives for greater voter registration and civic participation among young people at MTSU and at campuses nationwide. Through encouragement from professors and peers, young adults are shown the value of being more active citizens in their community, their state, and their nation. 
ADP seeks to nurture programs that raise the campus community's level of engagement with society. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Anthony Ferrone. We're talking about the coronavirus vaccines. Uh, Dr. Ferrone is a professor of biology. One of his specialties is immunology. Physicians interviewed by journalists have been warning the public not to let down their guard after they get the vaccine, to continue with the masks and the social distancing and the hand washing and all the protocols that have become part of our daily lives. Can you explain why it behooves us to continue to be vigilant even after we receive the vaccine? Uh, This summer I was doing a project in uh, the backyard putting some uh, pavers down, some uh, stone dust underneath the pavers and I thought it was funny. I showed my boys uh, on the warning on the paver dust. It said to wear an N95 mask. And it was kind of funny because prior to COVID, I don't think anybody would have known what an N95 mask was. But uh, the, the point of that is that, again, that dust particle is different than a virus particle. You know, one dust particle doesn't multiply into a thousand dust particles, right? But if you uh, think about a virus and wearing that N95 mask, you know, if you are vaccinated, it's still going to allow that virus particle to get in. So uh, a a family uh, that we know just all got over COVID. And because they, you know, felt that they were basically immune, they went to Dollywood and figured that they, you know, would be fine. But you still have to, even if you're going to Dollywood and you've had COVID, you you still need to wear that mask because, again, you can still be infected. And that's kind of the, the thing that I try to drive home to my students. You may not get sick, but that doesn't mean that you can't still be an amplifier to the virus. So, so that even though, you know, you might not be as uh, infected for as long because you've been vaccinated, your immune response is not the same as a mask. It still allows the virus to get in. It has to be recognized. And during that recognition phase, you're still spreading the virus to other people. So you, you still need to wear that N95 or whatever uh, mask you choose so that, again, uh, even with the, the vaccine during the rollout, you know, there's still going to be a lot of people that aren't vaccinated. There's going to, you know, be obviously physicians, healthcare workers, nursing home patients that get vaccinated. But uh, again, as we roll out the, the vaccine, uh, we're still going to have to uh, mask up and, and um, prevent that spread, even though, you know, you're uh, you know, vaccinated person, uh, you can still kind of be, I guess, what's called a carrier sometimes and uh, sort of like typhoid Mary. 
Uh, and again, more old references for me. I'm mm -hmm. talking about World War II and the uh, 1800s now with Typhoid Mary. But hopefully everybody uh, that's listening appreciates that reference that, you know, again, um, you know, you might not be susceptible, but, but you can still uh, spread the virus and, and um, make somebody else sick. Yeah. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who's director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, predicts that America could see signs of herd immunity by late spring or summer. Do you think that's realistic? It depends on uh, the percentage of the population that gets the vaccine. And, you know, like we said earlier, uh, it seems like the trend is in the right direction that people are uh, interested in getting the vaccine. And again, it might be different in different populations like we uh, kind of talked about uh, before. But again, the herd immunity relies on the most of the herd being uh, vaccinated. And uh, again, the few members uh, of the herd that aren't vaccinated, uh, those are the ones that the, the, the rest of the herd protects. The more uh, uh, vaccinated people we get, uh, the more we can uh, protect those people. And, and again, it could be, you know, again, somebody that's immune suppressed and got the vaccine may not have a good response. So, you know, you may be protecting a, a, a little kid on chemotherapy or something like that, that maybe they got the vaccine, but didn't have a good immune response. And so <clears throat> herd immunity is really important for uh, us to kind of think about others. When you referred to polio earlier, it reminded me of when I was eight years old and I was uh, sent to the gymnasium with the other kids at my elementary school. And they're in little paper peanut cups, like the kind you put peanuts in at a party. There was the sugar cube that was saturated with uh, Dr. Albert Sabin's oral polio vaccine. I didn't know that. I just saw that it was a sugar cube. And of course, <laughs> hey, I went right for it. And it was so good, I went back to the table and asked my principal, Mr. Carl Holder, may I have another one? And he said, no, Jenna, only one to a customer, uh, even though there was this big box of Domino sugar cubes sitting there. And I didn't understand, but I accepted it. And as I got older, I understood what it was. I'm so grateful that they made us do that. When uh, Edward R. Murrow asked Dr. Jonas Salk, who's credited with the first polio vaccine, the injectable one. Who owns the patent? Dr. Salk told Ed Murrow, well, the people, I would say. There's no patent. Could you patent the sun? And then Dr. Sabin also declined to patent his oral polio vaccine. What guarantee do we have that this, the COVID vaccine will always be available to the, the poor and the marginalized for free or at a price they can afford? I think we kind of got away from being part of the global community. And there is a definite uh, international uh, push and uh, organization to uh, keep the um, COVID vaccines and all vaccines, uh, Bill Gates has been involved in this as well, uh, available and, and um, free uh, to the entire population. And I just read an article in the paper that, that there was this imbalance already in terms of the uh, first world or whatever, uh, richer countries having more access. Um, so, so it is really um, important that we uh, keep these vaccines uh, available, equitable 
available to everyone. Um, you know, like, like you say, uh, I tell my students uh, that there's actually a connection between uh, Mary Poppins and uh, the Sabin vaccine in that the uh, Sherman brothers actually wrote that Mary Poppins song, The Spoonful of Sugar Helps the Medicine Go Down, based on them coming home and telling the their dads, the Sherman uh, brothers that wrote all the songs for Disney, that, hey, Pop, I just got the uh, Sabin vaccine uh, on a sugar cube like you did. And uh, that's that was the idea for the uh, Mary Poppins song about a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. And, and uh, you know, they talked about uh, Elvis also promoting the polio vaccine. And, and so I think if we get that kind of uh, support, you know, throughout the community that people will get the vaccine, but also be more sort of open to uh, making sure that uh, we uh, kind of do what we can uh, on a kind of global scale to help other people. The uh, hard sciences, your discipline and others have taken sort of a beating over the past few decades uh, from skeptics, conspiracy theorists, and people who just don't understand. And I'm not just talking about anti-vaxxers, but the issue of climate change mm. and, and several other issues that uh, involve scientific data to help us know what's true and what's not. Mm. If these vaccines are as safe and effective as advertised, could this become like the start of a comeback for science in general in the hearts and minds of the American people? We got our... Um new science building, uh, Davis Science Building back in the 60s as a result of that uh, Sputnik effort and the uh, space race. Again, some of these uh, you know, vaccine efforts have been kind of competitive with uh, different countries like, you know, I, I guess we wanted to uh, approve the uh, COVID vaccine before the UK uh, in, in a kind of um, political competition between countries sort of way. But yeah, I, I'm hoping that there is that kind of um, better uh, understanding and uh, uh, appreciation of science. You're helping to uh, do some of that through your classes and with your colleagues. And we appreciate that as well as your taking time out to help us understand what's going on with the vaccines. Dr. Anthony Farone, thank you for being our guest on MTSU on the Record. You're welcome. We'll be right back. The Intercultural and Diversity Affairs Center helps to promote awareness and understanding of the wide variety of cultures represented at MTSU. The center provides information, referrals, and resources. Additionally, IDAC tries to make students from different cultures feel welcome and comfortable on campus so they can have every opportunity to fulfill their academic, social, and personal potential. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. MTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. 
Jimmy Hart has the middle moment. Faculty and staff from MTSU's College of Education, as well as others from the campus community, recently gained valuable insights on achieving racial justice inside and outside of the classroom. The college was a co-sponsor of the Racial Justice in Education and Society virtual conference hosted by Vanderbilt University. Here's Interim Dean Rick Vanasdahl discussing the importance of educators broadening their perspectives. A key thing for a classroom educator is to be able to connect with their students. Perhaps even if they haven't had the same experiences, being able to listen and learn and moving from the mindset of transaction of learning to mm-hmm. transformational learning. And that transformational learning puts the people in the classroom who are typically thought of as students, but maintaining a culture of, of learning within that classroom means that the teacher is a co-learner and students are co-teachers with the people that are in the classroom. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.